Hey, welcome to Rebel Business. This is episode 10. I am your co-host, Mayhil Patel, here in New York. I got Phil Irvine out in sunny LA. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, glad to keep the conversation going here. Yeah, yeah man. So our, our uh, pal, Paul, is uh, still in France, I think. I don't even know. I uh, I think <laughs> he's still out there enjoying himself. So we'll see if uh, his seat uh, is still here when he comes back. Uh, <laughs> Phil's been kind enough to uh, fill in uh, last week and this week. And uh, if you didn't listen last week, um, screw you, first of all. But uh, second of all, Phil's background is heavy marketing, heavy advertising, knows a lot about that space, along with a lot of branding stuff. So we're going to touch on some of that stuff um, throughout the episode. Uh, but like we always do to start the episode, it's a bit of an AI plug since uh, we've been using um, one of these AI bots to help co-produce the show. Uh, looks like, uh, you know, this administration, some people in Congress still pushing regulation. I think there was a meeting out in the Bay Area as well, uh, which um, for somebody like me who's very pro free markets, uh, started his career on Wall Street. Um I know there's pros and cons of all of it. You know, unregulated capitalism is not ideal, but um, I think in this case, uh, I'm okay with the regulations and I'm, I'm actually glad to kind of keep seeing the focus on it. Uh, I think regulators are always behind uh, the market, uh, but I hope in this case, they can at least be the pace car <laughs> a little bit. Um, and, and make sure this doesn't turn into that social media mess that we kind of are still untangling. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, Phil, as far as on the, on the regulation side. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, I think through this the last couple of days, uh, I, I gotta think, um, you know, once it gets into the arena of, yeah, like violence, weapons, research, or things that can be, you know, catastrophically dangerous to society. Anything that can turn us into Skynet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I I mean, I I think of all the crazy mass shootings we have going on. You know, what if there's additional, you know, teenagers that are trying to look to chat GBT to figure out, like, what weapon is the best weapon to go in? That's true. Like, like, maybe that's an extreme case, but you got... Uh, Sadly, it probably isn't. You know, it's like things that we... I think with AI, it's the things that we don't want to think about is what we have to think about. Yeah. Because because it fills in the blanks for you. And sometimes those blanks... It's like, uh, you remember Mad Libs when we were kids? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you could have a fun Mad Libs, but if you had some psychotic playing Mad Libs and you read it, like if you read the Unabomber's Mad Libs, you'd be freaked out. Right. Right. And so it's just, it just comes with the sort of end user, how they're going to be using it. And, you know, obviously a a bunch of other things, but I'm glad to see that um, the regulators or or potential regulation is, is coming it's one of the few times I think it is important that it, even if it curbs the growth of it a little bit initially, it's okay in this instance. I don't, I don't know what the consensus out there is. There's probably some people who wanted to take over the world, but uh, yeah, I uh, I still like bitching at people and not uh, computers. Uh, there's still some satisfaction there, but anyway, um, 
you know, last week, uh, like we always do, uh, we do a prediction on what we think a opening uh, movie will make or on their opening weekend premiere. Uh, and last week we did the blackening. And I got to say, we freaking nailed it, Phil. We freaking nailed it. We mm-hmm. guessed, uh, you guessed 5 million, I guess 6 million. And it made 6 million in its premiere weekend. Um, you actually went and saw it, right? I did. I did. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, um, I think, you know, I think it has like a 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. So critics are actually giving it positive reviews, but I thought it was good. I, it was, you know, it was fun. It was a good mix of being a satire, but at the same time, it did have thriller elements to it. Okay. A bit of surprise. So it wasn't, it wasn't too corny, but it, it, and it did have some, some social commentary about classic tropes with black people and horror films, which it really, it landed well with me. Like I, I, like I said, I had a, I had a great time with it. Yeah. yeah, And I think that's what the preview looked like. The trailer looked like it was going to be a fun movie. And I think we touched on that. I think the business part of it, dude, the budget was $5 million. I mean, so in 72 hours, they already made their investment back and every ticket sold after this is just going to be pure alpha, pure profit, to me, that's more impressive than the 80% on Rotten Tomatoes as yeah. like a finance dork, uh, business uh, obsessed person. Um, that is really impressive. That type of math yeah. is really impressive because we don't get those big premiere weekends unless it's, you know, a Marvel movie or it's Little Mermaid or something that's just got global reach and is being marketed you know, on all the continents and, and is really being pushed. We just don't get those 50, $60 million weekends anymore for movies like this, because, you know, the mm-hmm. amount of people going to a movie is different, but uh, you know, from a marketing perspective uh, I thought what they did was pretty cool, right? Like they were showing the audience reactions in the trailer and it kind of made it a little more interactive and it's not the first time we've seen that but um was there anything that you thought they did on the marketing side that was a little bit different a little bit clever um that may have got people to buy tickets literally go there because of the marketing yeah i mean i think there was there was definitely a few things that stood out i guess you know number one um you know a lot of or adjacent movies are obviously released on Halloween, you know, or yeah, that yeah. period. And I thought it was really smart to release this on Juneteenth. You know, Juneteenth over the last three years has gained a lot of momentum as being, yeah. you know, a big occasion. It's, it's a very good point. You know, that was a, it's a long weekend that sort of sneaks up on people because we're not used yeah. to seeing it on the calendar. And now suddenly you have this extra day and, and obviously it ties in culturally for the whole purpose of the, the federal holiday and sort yeah. of what you were saying, there was a little bit of social commentary here. So I think that was really smart. I, I agree to, to release yeah. it then. And then, you know, with what I saw, cause I revisited, even after I saw the movie, I revisited the trailers and some of the, the digital marketing. And I think, you know, I, again, kind of leaning into the classic tropes with African-Americans in horror movies and, and not, you know, not just calling them out, but then having jokes around that and highlighting that 
in the previews, um, you yeah. know, the posters leading up to it. I think the big, the big headline that they have is we can't all die first. Like that's been, yeah, a, what, that's been a trope which for I, like 30 years. Which yeah. I thought was really smart, right? Because yep. I think now, obviously there's just like social justice. All of this is very much um, in front of us. And I think a lot of that's very good. I mean, I think that it's probably long overdue, but there's also a way to present that. And I think the way that they presented it was with humor, but also with truth, right? I mean, that's a joke that we all have made where, all right, yeah, the black dude's going to die first in this horror movie. Everybody knows that. And I think to just sort of diffuse it the way they did with humor was great um, because you kind of already, it was, it was just a great looking glass into what that movie was going to be like. Yeah. 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 And I, um, you know, uh, the other thing that, you know, the other thing you said on the front end about like the financials and the business aspect, yeah. you know, honestly, if I, if I, you know, if I switched careers and was in the movie industry or was an investor, I'd, I'd a hundred percent dive into horror. Like, um, you know, would. So um, yeah, like Blumhouse, like Jason Blum and Blumhouse Productions. I mean, a, a, a crazy solid model where they, they have lower you know, fees that they pay directors, but they give them, you know, pretty much full creative freedom. But if you think about horror movies too, it's typically one one or two locations. You can get, yeah. you know, B, C level, act- I shouldn't say B, C level, but actors that don't command high salaries. And yeah, they just have lower more- profiles, right? Yeah. They, they don't have the exposure that, you know, some of these other guys have. You're not, you're not, you're not going to have the rock in in a horror movie and expect the budget to be reasonable yeah yeah and it's uh you know there's there's minimum there's there's less post-production design coloring work that goes into like yeah the marvels the top guns the mission impossible franchises so it but but that the element of surprise it just it's gonna resonate with a certain facet of of the population so i if, if, if it was, you know, if I had to switch a career and I had to get into the movie space, it's, it's a genre that I, I don't think is going to go away, you, you know, like, like, you know, like superhero movies, there's a lot of conversations is that on the decline right now. But I think, I think horror is here to stay and there's original stories. I mean, yeah, it's been around for solid, uh, probably 40, 45 years now, you know, I mean, I don't know when the movie Psycho came out, but that was probably, you know, the birth of it, I think, I could be wrong about that, so 40, 45, 50 years, you know, I don't know, you know, from an investment standpoint, I, I'm trying to be totally honest, if somebody presented me with the script, I don't know, well, I haven't seen it, so I don't know, maybe the script really is um, a little different than most horror flicks are, I don't know if I would have been like, yeah, man, I would invest in this. But if I saw the marketing of it and the way that they went about it, um, that probably would have had a bigger impact on me than the actual script. And that, I think, is a reversal of how most movies probably are funded, right? You know, they probably start with, is the script any good? And here not i'm not bashing the script at all because again i haven't seen it but i just think the marketing was so clever with it it was it was i'm not somebody who goes to watch these movies i I never watch any of these movies that are horror like this but Mm -hmm. 
Would I, if somebody said you want to go see blocking, I probably, I could say 65%, depending on my mood that day, I would probably go. And I mm -hmm. could say if it was any other horror movie, we're talking single digit percent, you'd have to be a very attractive woman for me to go. That's it. That's <laughs> the only way I'm going. Um, but so I thought it was, it was it's interesting. I, I wonder if there'll be a little bit of a shift um, as far as marketing horror movies maybe they'll they'll uh do a little bit of the same or, or kind of take what they did but uh six million bucks on a five million dollar budget in 72 hours man that to me is really freaking impressive that's that's amazing make your money back that quickly uh so whoever uh, invested is super happy this week the writer's super happy everybody who's part of that super happy that's a as far as investment goes Great investment, may not win an Oscar, but who cares, man? <laughs> You're getting funding for your next uh, movie. Uh, Got to switching gears. Uh, I know. So Phil is a is a, is a fitness freak. Um, I, I think the first time we had him on here, I said how happy I was he he left New York, so I don't feel guilty about uh, my exercise regimen. I do exercise, but not like Phil. Phil's done 8,000 Ironman and does half marathons for fun, for fun, which is <laughs> disturbing, Phil. That is is pretty disturbing. But I did see something that was interesting. I guess post-pandemic, and I don't. I doubt this applies to you. I don't know. I'll be surprised. We haven't had a conversation about it. But I guess what's happening with... Um, gym memberships is a lot people that have them are going less a lot of people are now working out at home mm -hmm. um and i think there was some statistic as far as the you know exercise apps about 24 million people were using exercise apps in 2019 and by the end of this year it's projected i believe 44 million so that's almost, you know, a hundred percent increase in a very short period of time. Um, and it's, it's clearly the sort of, we're seeing it in the office world. Maybe we're starting to see it in the gym world. Um, do you, I guess one, yeah. would you fall under that category and ask you one, because, you know, fitness is such a big priority in your life and your lifestyle. But secondly, do you think we're in the early innings of the standalone gym uh, and its occupancy, its membership, are we at the peak and maybe we see a decline? Yeah. Similar, we saw this in retail, right? We saw standalone department stores slowly decline over time because people are like, I'm just going to shop from home. I'm just going to go on my computer and my phone, whatever, and I'm going to buy from Amazon. So I didn't know if you thought this was early yeah. innings, but um, I don't know. Do you fall under that category of doing the hybrid now? You know, yeah. So I, I have, uh, I have a couple of different thoughts with this. Um, I, you know, um, I, so I personally have been a member of Equinox, which is, you know, I, I think most people know Equinox, but it's one of the upper tier echelon. I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. It's, it's a bougie, bougie ass gym that I've been going to for about 10 years. And I have a deep brand connection with them. They have great amenities. They, have great classes. Um, as you mentioned, when I, I don't do Ironmans anymore, I'm a little too old now, but <laughs> it's great for training for that type of stuff. And 
Um, I, you know, that coupled with the fact that I, I just love face-to-face -face interaction. I get energy from it. I actually go physically to the gym six days a week. So, oh, so you're I, still, you're I, still, I still yeah. But having said that, um, I actually, I actually wrote a blog, a blog post about this during the height of the pandemic. And my, my main kind of guidance was I think health clubs and fitness chains still needed to evolve into supporting digital behaviors because, um, you know, even though I go to Equinox six days a week when I travel or when, even when I go to the gym, I use their digital app on a regular basis to do my, mm -hmm. own, you know, my own uh, uh, ad hoc workouts. And I feel like part of that trend that you're pointing out is a lot of these gyms are investing in, in mobile digital apps to be able to replicate they're in physical experiences, you know, either at their gyms for classes or if you're at home or traveling and things of that nature. So I, um, I, I wanted to call that out. The other thing that I think is interesting is um, so Beachbody, where I used to work, they have a Beachbody on demand platform. It's 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 tailored toward people that purely work out at home and then, yeah. Peloton, you know, the Peloton bike. Both of those companies had massive increases in, in growth. In oh, Peloton exploded during the lockdown, exploded. Yeah, but- And then cratered, of course. Exactly. I mean, Peloton had some other issues with adverts, you know, brands fallout and stuff like that. But Beachbody also was on the decline. And so I, 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 I wonder if that's also a signal that- you know, people maybe are transitioning from purely working out at home to this hybrid type of structure and not necessarily like like purely investing in those types of platforms for all their their fitness. So. I, I think so. I mean, I guess I'm a little different. I get no energy from seeing these people in the gym. <laughs> I just I get grossed out, dude. Like I just am like get I need more space. Move the hell away from me. I'm definitely that guy. Uh, I try to go like off off peak hours. When, you know, I, I, I work for myself. So I have that luxury of going midday. If I, if my schedule, you know, I can create my schedule that way. And I do that because I don't want to deal with people, um, you know, particularly in New York where I'm just like, you know, going to a crowded gym in New York at this point, I'm just, all I see is the probability of me catching a cold or getting annoyed. One of the two or both. Uh, so I tend to not go now. I mean, for a long while, I had just been working at home. You know, I mm -hmm. live in a high rise building. I was doing things like just running up the stairs. Um, so I was trying to really mimic it. But coincidentally, I went and checked the gym that's in my building, which of course is New York. Even though I have a gym in my building, they freaking charge you for it because it's that's what that's what they do in New York is is wherever they can get you, they will. Yep. And uh, I was so stubborn. Initially, it was 165 bucks, and I was like, "There's just no way I'm paying you 165 dollars." And so, I think uh, right when the pandemic started, I was like, "I'm getting rid of this." I didn't go back, but then more recently, I was like, "Man, all right, let me you know go up there and just." see you know maybe maybe it is time to start using the gym again because i am running out of routines at home and they shockingly the membership now is 95 dollars 
Oh, interesting. Interesting. So it went from 165 to 95. And I don't know if that's, you know, they, they need to attract people because ultimately it's only the people in the building that are going to go. It's still the same operator, uh, same equipment, nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. And so I found that sort of interesting and curious is, which is what drove me to kind of look into what's going on in the gym world. And I, I think if that's, it's very anecdotal and it's singular to a building yeah. that I happen to live in, but I, you know, the more I was thinking about it, it might be the early innings. It might be the yeah. early innings because when you go back and you look at standalone department stores mm -hmm. and even blockbuster video, this is sort of how it started. People yeah. started, you remember you had those pick up and drop off kiosks for CDs and DVDs. It started with small things. And, you know, I think ultimately there'll always be people that go to the gym. You know, you're yeah. somebody who I think will go until the wheels fall off. Um, yeah. But it's something to watch. It's definitely something to watch. Could be early innings of a, a real shift there um, because yeah. it, I, I, I have, you know, I have exercise apps on my phone. I probably only use 30% of them, but I have them on there. They are there. And so it is easier to get into that hybrid model. So we'll, we'll yeah. see. It's an interesting space to keep an eye on. Um, yeah. And maybe they have to change their branding. I don't know. Um, yeah. In order to get people there. And so one of, one of the things we were actually, me and you were talking about was, um, you know, the Blackwing branding was great worked amazing uh it doesn't always work out that way and, and i was kind of curious to go back and see some brands that we are very familiar with and it not work uh and i, I didn't know about this one at all it was uh, i guess in tropicana everybody knows this orange juice in 2009 uh it underwent a major rebranding that resulted in a 20 percent drop in sales and really all they did was, you know, the Tropicana orange got changed into a kind of, con, you know, just a clear square that was colored in orange that said Tropicana. That's it. That's all they did. And they lost 20% on sales. That's insane. That's insane to me. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I was, I was reading up on this a little bit yesterday. I guess, you know, the other component is they, I don't know if they did this with all the packages, but they had, they literally had uh, like a molding of an orange, like at the top of the package to sit to, I guess, insinuate that it's freshly squeezed and you kind of got yeah. satisfaction of squeezing <laughs> like orange into the, the packaging. I, I yeah, I thought that was amazing. Um, 20%, dude. That means one out of five people that's going into the grocery store about to grab Tropicana, they look yeah. at it and they're like, oh, no, screw this. I'm not taking, there's no orange on this. No, no, yeah. I'm putting it back. One out of five, one out of five <laughs> people is doing that. That, right. that to me is wild. So what I'm, you know, uh, so, you know, reading up on it, I obviously hindsight's 2020 people had a deep emotional connection to the original packaging, which I, I, frankly, I frankly don't get to me, orange juice is freaking orange juice. But I, I, what amazed me though, is that, um, you know, a lot of times when you do this type of stuff, you, you, you run it, you run small tests, like you test in certain yeah. diverse yeah, yeah, markets, yeah, yeah, of you see what the 
the uptick is or decline is. And then, and then based off of that, you have these nationwide rollouts. So I didn't, I didn't research it far enough to see if they did that, but I'm, a, I'm amazed that they did it at this massive I mean, scale. If they did that, some, yeah, if somebody should get fired over it, but if they, if they did that and ignored it or didn't do it, but I do find it wild that the packaging alone can drive 20% decrease in sales like that. I don't think there's anything out there where if they change the packaging, I, I would care about, you remember when CDs were first sold, it was like in a big box, right? This big, yep. long cardboard box. And then they got smart and were like, this is costing us too much. And it was just wrapped in plastic after yeah. that, like wrapping, you know, like almost like saran wrap, thin papery plastic stuff that had no impact for me yeah. as far as I, I was like, I still want this CD. I still want orange juice. Like I found that to be amazing. And then the other big one, I mean, I remember this was in 1985 when Coca-Cola rolled out new Coke and it was a disaster. I mean, just mm -hmm. an utter disaster. It was, and it was met with pretty, pretty widespread backlash. Um, you know, there are, there are people who are really like, yeah, I, this is, I'll never drink this. I'm going to drink Pepsi. Um, and I, I think that one was different because it was also, they were changing the taste of it and they branded themselves for so long. I don't remember if you remember this when we were kids, like, you know, the, the secret formula to Coca-Cola, yeah. it's this big mm -hmm. secret, even the CIA doesn't know about it. And so I, I get it on that one. That one almost seems like different than Tropicana in the sense that, yeah, if you're sitting in a conference room, you would think that that change in Tropicana would have no impact. This is just sharing like arrogance to think that yeah. you're going to change the taste of your product and think it's not going to have an impact. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it, this made me think of... Uh... Because, you know, fast forward to 2023, Coca-Cola owns a ton of brands. I don't have the number yeah, offhand, tons, but they their acquisitions. And, you know, a lot of times with branding 101 classes, you talk about the concept of a house of brands or a branded house where, you know, a branded house is, do you, do you just lean into Coca-Cola versus a house of brands? You kind of treat acquisitions as separate entities and you align marketing, messaging, kind of okay. separate. So it seems like a separate entity in it. It seems like with this, especially with such a popular formulation that they should have treated new Coke as like, you know, a house of brands, as opposed to layering it into the branded house and almost having, you know, having like new. Well, yeah, they had to, yeah, they had to retroactively. Right. Cause I think what happened soon thereafter and, and I remember this like was on this main like national news that like this, like of new coke and yeah. it was comics back in the day were making fun of it and, and on late night uh snl i mean there's skit it's all over the place i was looking at it and i was like wow this was i remember being a big deal but then retroactively then they were like okay we're gonna roll out coca-cola classic yeah. right <laughs> so you could still get you know the original coke and then you know everybody stop freaking out about it but um i guess it, it shows two things that people it gets into people's subconscious for sure yeah. and um this country is addicted to sugar <laughs> I mean, yeah, right, right i mean that is just liquid sugar it's different types of liquid sugar and everybody 
freaked out. They're just like, I, if I'm going to become a diabetic, I, I need to do it the way I want to. Uh, I mean, in your, in, uh, in your back, I think it was, it was when, when Bloomberg was mayor there in your backyard, wasn't he trying to put a ban on like 24 ounce serving yeah. soft drinks, but New Yorkers revolted against that or something. Yeah. So they like, I think they put some sort of tax on it instead. And I was like, who's pushing back against drinking 24? I think it's 36 ounces. Yeah. I, I'm probably I don't know how you can consume 36 ounces of soda and a not hate yourself, but B not feel terrible all day. I, I don't yeah. know, but I, I think our addiction to sugar uh, is as much a part of the new co- new Coke failure as the actual yeah. branding is probably equal. Um, but like, those were the two that I saw that were just, yeah. you know, a massive fails. I know you had brought up IHOP when we were talking about it and they yeah. decided that potentially they were thinking about, or maybe they did do this, uh, to have IHOP burgers, which I, again, I, you got to know your lane. That just seems yeah. like, again, a little bit of arrogance. Your your pancakes are not like amazing. They're amazing when you're hungover and you're drunk and you're in college and it's 3 a.m. Yeah. Burgers at IHOP, I would avoid at all costs. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I'm purely speculating. There was probably some research that surfaced that said uh, the consumption of burgers is accelerating faster than pancakes. So we got to, you know, keep up with the trend and that that likely led to this new direction but it it just goes back to the theme we have here you can't you can't alienate you know your customers and their original connections with your brand you know i think uh um no. you know but bud light is a good example of this too like i i mean i'm all for reaching out to new markets and new demos but i think i think where they messed up is when they came out and were basically, you know, criticizing their core customers saying that they're all frat boys and, you know, short-sighted. And I, I honestly think that's where the backlash and declining sales for Bud Light was less. So the fact that they went into the trans, you know, the trans universe, like I, so I, I think it's kind of similar to this theme of you can't, you can't alienate you know, your customers and where they. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta know your customer and you also gotta know like, what your product is, right? It, it, it's, it's, I mean, IHOP is discount pancakes, man. Uh, that that's what it is, and that's what it's known for. But I, I thought that was interesting when when you brought it up. Um, on a, on, a, on a lighter subject, uh, it, it, it does touch on branding. It's, um, I, I guess, this happened during the, I think it was Game Four of the NBA Finals, uh, Miami Heat versus the Denver Nuggets. Um, what happened was there was a skit and it was uh, with, I think it was during a timeout in game four, pretty sure. And it involved Connor McGregor and the heat mascot, Bernie. And I guess they, it was just like a, almost like a staged little fight. And I guess McGregor hit him pretty hard in the gut. And the guy had to go to the hospital. Um, the mascot had to go to the hospital and it was, it was a little bit of a story, and it made me think about a couple things. Um, one, why the hell do we still have mascots to begin with? Like, does anybody really care about mascots? I definitely don't care. I don't care. I don't know. I, I, I think this touches a, a personal subject because uh, Phil is yeah. a 
Phil is an alum of Notre Dame and at, at, at his core, he's, he's, he bleeds green. There's just no question about it. Uh, no question about it. So do you have a feeling about mascots? I think if we got rid of them, I don't think anybody would care. Yeah. I, 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 to me, it's a real simple delineation, professional versus college. I feel like in, in, to your point in college, it's not just Notre Dame alums, but, you know, tons of people from schools with passionate fan bases. I think there's, I think there's, there's, there's deep connections that people have. The mascot? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm talking about the yeah. person who dresses up at the game. I'm not <laughs> saying get rid of mascots for the team, like an emblem or whatever. Yeah. I'm just saying, I don't know, man. I, I went to the university of Maryland and that turtle that would come out. I could give a shit if we ever saw that dude again, could care less. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I guess the one other one, no, you bring up a good point. The other one that I can think of, though, is uh, the Stanford Cardinal, the tree, um, where uh, I don't know if, you, if you've heard any of these stories, but they used to they used to come to Notre Dame and they would do some borderline like 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 off stuff that shouldn't be be presented in in family settings. And it was they, they just they just made a joke out of it and they would do these skits. And I and, and because comedy was involved, I feel like there's a place for that. Um, and then at Notre Dame, it was symbolic for us. But uh, I don't know, as I'm talking through this, you may have changed my mind for <laughs> other people. You're right. They probably don't give a shit. But, <laughs> listen, listen. but well, So the thing I found out about Bernie, the, the heat mascot, if you could believe this, that stupid mascot has cost them over a million dollars in lawsuits. In lawsuits. The mascot, like when they've, I guess one woman was dragged out onto the court or something to dance with them and she got hurt, sued for a big number and got it. At that point, if I'm running the heat, I'll be like, this idiot just cost us a million dollars. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. In fact, maybe uh, they told McGregor, just punch him in the ribs for real. We'll we'll pay you. Let's just let's just take out Bernie because this guy's costing us money. That's when I was shocked. I was like, why would you have a mascot at this point if it's costing you money? It just seems outdated. It just seems outdated. You know, the one blind spot for us is, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. Neither, neither of us have kids. You know, I know we have, you know, I have nephews and maybe there's a younger kid maybe where it's, it's providing that entertainment value. If they don't understand the game, you know, at that point, like that's a, that's that's a diplomatic answer, Phil. I will will give you that, that's a diplomatic answer. It's gotta be one of the only things out there where if you're the absolute best at, you still don't make any money. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anything else, any other profession, man, if you're the very best at it, you do well. I don't care what it, how obscure it is. You do well. I don't think the best mascot on the planet does very well. I don't think so. That's my guess. Yeah. I don't know that yeah. factually, but I don't think they make shit. And, uh, I'm okay if somebody was like enough with the mascots, but I thought that was kind of ridiculous when I heard it cost the team a million bucks. I'm like, this guy still has a job. Get this guy out of there. Right. Right. That's wild. Right. Wild. But we're uh, kind of coming to the end of our episode here. And again, we always do trailer trash or trailer treasure. Um, The 
movie that's premiering um, this weekend that we're going to take a guess on how much it's going to make is No Hard Feelings. And I will read you the description of this movie. On the brink of losing her childhood home, Maddie, Jennifer Lawrence, discovers an intriguing job listing. Wealthy helicopter parents looking for somebody to quote unquote date their introverted 19-year-old son, Percy, before he leaves for college. To her surprise, Maddie soon discovers the awkward Percy is no sure thing. You saw the preview. Actually, you saw the preview at the Blackening, right? Right, right, right. I did see it. Um, I got to be honest, the, the premise, somewhat interesting. Um, I could tell they're going to go for some vulgar jokes here and there. Oh, yeah. It had the NC-17. It's funny, whenever you see the NC-17 rating before preview and the red, like my eyes perk up because I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh damn, what are they going to do that's going to be, you know, out there? But I don't know, man. I I just don't think this is going to uh, – I mean, we'll, we'll talk about our projections here. I don't think it's going to land like like other – like like other funny comedy movies over the past five to seven years. I, that, that's my initial gut looking at the previews and the, the marketing so far. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I saw it. It's also Jennifer Lawrence in kind of a different role. Right. I don't think we've really seen her in NC-17 type movies. And I agree when you see NC-17, it makes you feel like 17. And when you were 17, you're like, I'm going to go see NC-17 movies for the rest of my life. That's all I'm going to see. Yeah, that's all you think about when you're 15, 16 years old. Um, you know, they're prob I assume it's trying to go for like kind of like the hangover or some, yeah. something along those lines. Um for some reason, I I think it's gonna do okay. I think it's gonna do well. I think she's in a different role. It's a it is original. I will say it's an original idea. Um, and the NC seventeen thing, you're you're a hundred percent right. It we're talking about it, you know, because of that. It, there there has to be some element of edge in here, and that might be enough to get people to go when they're deciding between this movie or that. And it's like, all right, you know, let's go with this one. It's going to be a little bit edgier. I'm going to guess, you know, I don't, I thought blacking 6 million, but I thought they did an awesome job with the marketing, everything. Um, I don't think this is probably on par with it, but the NC 17 has some value. I'm going to say three and a half million bucks. Three and a half. You know, so I, counter to my gut take, I actually think it's gonna. I think it's gonna do around eight million. Eight um, million. Wow. Okay. So, so I'm I'm partially cheating because I I researched what the tracking was for this on opening. Okay. And the tracking was at ten. So the tracking was at ten, eleven. So I I'm going under what wow so called experts are saying here. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And if it goes for a 10, 11, it would be interesting because it might be that's the value of having someone like Jennifer Lawrence, right? Yeah, that, Honest, yeah. honestly, that I think that's, it's it's her, I don't know what the studio is behind it. Maybe it's a more powerful studio. Matthew Broderick is the dad of the awkward, you know, sons. All and, right. So you've got, yeah. you know, that, and, and Matthew Broderick probably means nothing to a 20 year old, but to us, we know him. Yeah. That's Ferris Bueller, right? So there is 
there's some draw. They're getting some generational draw between those two actors. Maybe I'll be curious. I I think three and a half, four is where I feel comfortable saying uh, mostly because I, I just thought what we were talking about earlier about blackening, it was just really clever marketing. Yeah. So we shall see uh, next week uh, where this thing lands. Um, I probably won't go see this movie, but um, we'll see where it goes. Uh, it's going to be our episode. Um, I hope you guys join us next week. Phil, thanks for uh, jumping on again. And um, we have no idea. You might be back next week as well. We have no <laughs> idea. If, we have no idea if Paul's uh, coming back or what. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm more than happy to step in. And uh, I don't know. We'll see what the audience says. Maybe maybe they want a, a little more Phil Irvine in their lives. We'll see. <laughs> they might. They might. All right, everybody. Take care. Hey, thanks a lot, guys.